So this morning we're continuing in our summer series, Ethics in Room 21C, or Ethics in the 21st uh, Century, uh, which is based on the book of Exodus, chapter 20, which is the Ten Commandments, or in Hebrew it's the Ten Words. And people often ask, how do you base a 21st century ethics series on something that is written so long ago? Well, God gave the Ten Commandments to be the guidelines of, of how people are to live in the, in the covenant community that he had called them to. A covenant community is a community uh, that, that is based on relationship with God. It's not a contractual community. Right? If you're in a contractual community or contractual relationship, a contract outlines what each party is supposed to do to hold up their end of the contract. If one, car, if one party does not hold up their end of the contract, the contract is violated and broken. In a covenant relationship, the covenant is maintained and is committed to by both parties, but it's always maintained by the stronger party. So when we think about a covenant marriage, we say in a covenant marriage, both people commit to the marriage, but the one in a given season that is stronger is saying, I'm going to be the one who carries it. So some, day, some days it's the husband, some days it's the wife. It's not contractual. It's not broken because someone falls short somewhere. In covenant, we say, no, we keep going, and whichever one is stronger is the one who's carrying it that day. God has a covenant relationship with us. He created a covenant with his people. He called them out of slavery, and he said, I am making a covenant with you. I will be your God. You will be my people, and it is maintained by the stronger party, which is God. And so now he says, for this covenant community, I give you the Ten Commandments to live out this relationship, and this is how you live in blessing in this covenant relationship. Now, I need to say a brief word about blessing because some people have this idea of blessing. I do these things for God and then God blesses me by giving me what I want. I've heard that preached in various places, not here, ever. But that's not God's blessing. God's blessing is rooted in the fact that we say, God, you are sovereign, you are king, and we live your way. We live in relationship with you. That is the first blessing. And we live according to your guidance and your principles, regardless of what life brings us. It's not a way to get what we want. It's a way to live in right relationship with God. And then God gave the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words, to say, this is how this works. So in review, the first three words, the first three commandments are about our relationship with God, about the supremacy of God, the priority of God, the sovereignty of God. The fourth word is about keeping the Sabbath holy. Why is that so important? Because God says, this is how you actually grow and live out the first three. It's by taking that day and actually centering that day on God so that you actually have a place to, to learn and to grow what the, the, the implications of the first three. It's that environment that is created when we, when we protect a day of rest and a day of focus on God, a day of trusting God not just working every day and try and just take everything for ourselves and make everything work for ourselves. Say, no, God, I trust you for this. And out of that then, you can live out the next six, which is all about relationships that people have with each other. So last weekend, Pastor Ray did a wonderful job of preaching honor your father and mother and the importance of that. If you, if you missed it, I suggest that you watch it online because I think it's a very significant message uh, that Pastor Ray gave last week. So today we go into the sixth word, <clears throat> which is Exodus chapter 20, verse 3. 
And here it is in its full length. You shall not murder. Seems pretty straightforward. Like that's, I think, one of the words on the list. You know, you say honor your father and mother. You go, oh, that could be hard. Right? Depending on your relationships, depending on your story, you go, I don't know. You know, do not murder. I go, generally most of us go, okay, I'm good. Check. Right? We can do that. We can commit to not killing anyone. Say, okay, well, pastor, I guess we're good. We can go home now. You know, we can knock it off early. Well, there's more to this word than simply not killing. And that's why it's actually in the list, is that there is more that God wanted to say to us, and that's why he told Moses to write it down. So do not murder, if you go back to the original language, to the Hebrew, it's made up of two words, lo, L-O, and ratsak, would be our English way of pronouncing it, which means don't kill. So even shorter. But even in that context, there's more to that word, because actually in Hebrew, there's eight uh, words that mean kill. It's not just one. And the word that's being used here does not apply to military situations. Uh, it, does, it does not apply to legal situations. It's not part of the legal system. It doesn't apply to animals or hunting or killing animals. It applies very specifically to the unlawful killing of a human being. So it's a narrow focus that this word has. It's about the unjust taking of a legally innocent life. Now remember, this is in the context of relationship with God, according to God's laws, not human laws, in the context of a covenant people who are in covenant relationship with each other. So commentator uh, John Durham put it this way. He said, the basic prohibition was against killing for whatever cause, under whatever circumstances, by whatever method, a fellow member of covenant community. Okay, a fellow human being. Why is that so important? Why are they highlighting that? Why does this not apply to animals? Because it's only people who are made in the image of God. It's only people who are made in the image of God. Remember when, if you were here for our Genesis series, when God created uh, the earth and the animals, he goes, this is good. When he created human beings, he said, this is very good. He said, let us create man and woman and let us create them in our image, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, created human beings in, our, in, in their image. And so to actually kill a human being is to kill someone made in the image of God. And when God looked at his creation, he, he said, this is so good. This is my masterpiece. So really when you violate another person, you are harming, you are violating God's masterpiece the great designer, the great creator, the great artist. Calvin, the, the great theologian, wrote uh, 500 years ago and said this, Our neighbor bears the image of God. To use him, abuse, or misuse him is to do violence to the person of God who images himself in every human soul. So when we harm other people, when we violate other people, when we kill people, what God is saying here is you're damaging the image of God in someone else. God has a very high view of human life, a very high view of the sanctity of life. His view of life is much higher than our own, much, much higher uh, than our own. 
And that's why he's given us this sixth word, to elevate the sanctity of life. Now, I would say in our Canadian culture, the sanctity of life has actually come under attack in recent years. In fact, I would say the sanctity of life has not only uh, come under attack, I think Canadians increasingly have come to believe that human life is disposable. And I know that's a strong statement. But bear with me as I explain this. The worldview that we have right now is a worldview that actually creates a culture of death. How does it do that? Because it's a worldview focused on serving our personal wants and desires, our personal uh, needs as we perceive them. It's a worldview that is commonly known as individualism. I'm sure you've heard the word many times in North America. It is a very North American worldview. It's a very individualistic worldview. And when we participate in an individualistic worldview, we actually participate in creating a culture of death. So why do I say something that strong? Here's the definition in the dictionary of individualism. Uh, Merriam-Webster says, as individualism is a doctrine that the interests of the individual are or ought to be ethically paramount. So what that means is that the interests of the individual uh, being ethically paramount means that, that the interest of the individual is the most important thing. What I want, what I think about me, what I want for myself is more important than anything else. In other words, I define my ethical standard, how I will behave, how I will treat other people is based on my opinions and my desires. That's what individualism is. Or as a recent Facebook post said, I will only do those things that serve me. That's another definition of individualism. I will only do those things that serve me. Lawyer Bruce Cleminger, uh, who works in Ottawa, and Bruce is the executive director of the Evangelical Fellowship of Canada. Uh, the Evangelical Fellowship of Canada is an organization that re- represents uh, denominations across the country like ours. And when there's a case that's going before government, like the cases for assisted suicide or the cases for the student grants uh, this last couple of years, when that was cha- changing, uh, Bruce would, would represent churches across the country uh, to lobby the government to say, here's what you need to consider in, which, in the laws that you are making. So that's what he does. And this is what he wrote about individualism. He said, individualism assumes that there is no community that defines us, that there is no prior or external authority outside of ourselves. Legitimacy of thought is something we determine something we confer, it is, not, it is not something we acknowledge to exist outside of ourselves. What does this mean? It means death is for sale. It is a commodity, a service to be used for our personal bidding. That's a sobering statement. He says that is the result of individualism. And then in his article, he quotes National Post colonist uh, Joseph Bream who described death becoming a civil servant. And he said, death will operate in the open during business hours with a budget and a boss. His work will be humanized and bureaucratized. Death will be licensed, regulated, and empowered by law to solve a public policy problem. The unacceptability to certain people of certain types of dying. Death will become a civil servant. It'll be managed by the government. 
What's he talking about? He's saying if healthcare is too expensive or if life is too uncomfortable, then we should, should suggest death with dignity, assisted suicide. That's what he's referring to in this context. But we see it play out in other ways too. If it's too expensive to bring a child into the world, then we suggest abortion. Prevailing societal thought in North America says that a woman's right over her body overrules all other considerations. Prevailing thought says that a man or a woman's right to end suffering in their lives overrules the sanctity of life. Here's a more sobering one. In a recent report to the Canadian lawmakers from the Special Joint Committee on Physician-Assisted Dying. Okay, this was a government committee that was meeting, and this was presented to them. It was suggested that Canada permit doctors to facilitate the suicide of mature minors with psychic illness or psychiatric illness causing intolerable suffering. So if you have someone under the age of 18 who was dealing with uh, depression or, or um, schizophrenia or something like that, that, they, that doctors were to facilitate suicide for that individual if they desire, if they're under the age of 18. So across the ages, th- through the expression of individualism in North America, in Canada specifically, creating a culture of death because we are the center. We are our moral center. There was a time when we understood that the sanctity of life transcends the individual, that it bonds us together in stewardship of human life and gives us a sense of responsibility for each other. That is what God calls us to. That is what society used to be about. The sanctity of life are the grounds for rights and and responsibilities that's something greater than the individual. It's something greater than simply personal interest that guided our lives together. It bonded us together, upholding the sanctity of life. Because when you uphold the sanctity of life, you care for those who are the marginalized and the weak and the vulnerable and the aged, the unborn, those with disabilities, those with mental illness. That's what the sanctity of life does, is it elevates all those things. The sanctity of life is what should determine human rights. And human rights are actually not human rights unless they protect sanctity of life for all. Now, I know some of you come from backgrounds and cultures where individualism is not the running way of thinking the way it is in Canada. But what I firmly believe is regardless of what culture you come from or what country you come from, every country, every culture has some, some dominant belief that wants to place itself above God. Every country has that. Every culture has that. Some places it's the government that says, We're, we should be above God. We should rule your lives. Some places it's belief in family. That should rule life. Some places it's children and the worship of children. That should rule life. In some places it's, it's your position and status in society. It's your income. That should rule life. Every culture has something that wants to take the place of God. So even in Canada, it's individualism. And that might not be your story. But in every story, there is belief systems that compete for the supremacy of God's place in our lives. For every one of us. And we need to struggle with that and deal with that. 
But when we recognize that we are created in the image of God, we also need to acknowledge that God is sovereign over life and over death. God is the author of life. He is the inventor of life. He is the ruler of life. He is the sustainer of life. That is who God is. And to take, God's, to take life unlawfully based on God's law, not human law, based on God's law, is to violate the sovereignty of God over life and death. It is to play God, just like the, the definition of individualism told us. It is actually to pay, play God. In the book of Genesis, in Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, when Noah comes on the scene, God begins to lay out the teaching, the foundation uh, for the sanctity of life. When he says to Noah, he says, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And that is the foundation for the prohibition against murder. Murder is fundamentally wrong because all people are made in the image of God. And there is no sense where anyone can claim superiority over others. One of the interesting things in biblical history is when you read all the rules and the fines and and the punishments for violating laws is never in biblical history was there ever a place provided where if you were wealthy enough and and you happened to cause the the murder of someone else or even the manslaughter of someone else, never was there a place to say, well, you just pay a fine, an exorbitant fine, a heavy fine, and then you'll be good. God says, no, with human life, there's no amount of money that actually, that actually can equate for the loss of a human life because life is precious. It's made in my image. God upholds the sanctity of life because every life is valuable in the sight of God and no one can claim superiority over another person in the sight of God. None of us can do that. So now, how do you take this picture of God and the sanctity of life? How do you take this picture that elevates the sanctity of life? And what are the practical implications for us in the 21st century that builds out our ethics? And that's where I want to spend the rest of our time. Because in our culture, there's a reality between what the culture is saying in Canada and what the church is teaching, obviously. There's a tension between current government policies in places and what the church is teaching and what the Bible teaches. So how do we live this out? Well, Jesus teaches us how to do this. In Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus is quoting Exodus chapter 20, verse 13, and in your pew Bible, Matthew chapter 5 is on page 810. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is teaching, and he's teaching to his disciples and to other people who all would have known the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words, off by heart. So when Jesus begins the teaching, and he says uh, in verse 21, he says, you have heard it said, that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. And everyone listening goes, yeah, we know that. We get that. And then Jesus starts the next sentence with that little phrase that he uses so often that turns everything upside down. You've heard it said, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, which was the Sanhedrin, which was the ruling Uh, religious council of the day. Whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So Jesus takes Exodus 20, chapter 13, where everyone's going, yeah, we're not going to kill. We can check the box on that. We're good. And now he turns it around and he ups the ante dramatically. He said, that's fine that you're not physically killing anyone, but how are you speaking to each other? 
What kind of words are you using with each other? Are you putting other people down with your language? Are you name-calling? Do you harbor ill will in your heart towards someone else? Are you judging someone else in that way? Now, they knew that abusive language was punishable by the Sanhedrin, as he says. But then he equates despising the moral worth of another. You fool, you idiot. He says, use that language and you're in danger of hell. Those are strong words. Those are incredibly strong words. If you insult your brother or sister, if you call them a fool, you're in danger of hell. He's saying, though, even though you don't murder each other literally, do you have murder in your heart? Because the words are just a reflection of what's in our hearts. And he's now calling us to question, do we have murder in our hearts? Because the place where the act of murder actually starts is the condition of the heart. It's just by the time there's an act of murder, the heart's already calcified. It's already hardened with evil. By the time we're ready to take someone else's life. Followers of Christ understand the value of every person to God, the power of God to transform any and every life. So consequently, you cannot ever say someone is morally worthless. You cannot ever say someone is beyond hope. You cannot ever say that I'm so much better than that other person. Because God says, you're all made in my image. You all stand equally before me. You cannot talk down to anyone. So Jesus reframes the sixth word. And he directs his disciples and those listening to, to check their hearts on the underlying condition of their heart. The underlying condition of, of what it is that brings out their speech. And the Bible is repeatedly so clear on the consequences of this. So the book of 1 John, written much later than Matthew, 1 John says, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Or Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So whatever harsh words are coming out of you at whatever time, Jesus is saying, well, you're just showing what's in here. That's all you're doing. You're just showing what's already in here. So what does God call us to do? How are we supposed to deal with a culture of death in that most fundamental basic place, which is our relationships with each other, which Jesus, where Jesus takes Exodus chapter 20, do not kill, and he jumps straight to this place of relationship with people. The next verses tell us, verse 24 of Matthew 5. So if you are offering your gift at the altar... And then remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. So in their context, people are bringing their gifts to the altar. So that'll be some sacrifice that's in the middle of their form of worship. In the highest form of worship they could participate in. It's in a public setting. Other people are watching, probably hundreds of people around, especially if you're in Jerusalem. The center of that worship. And he's saying, if you're in the middle of that worship, I want you to take whatever gift you have. I want you to drop it there and go make things right if, someone, if you know or think someone has something against you. This is not about you having something against someone else. If you think someone has something against you, if the Spirit has poked your heart and said, think you offended someone the other day, drop everything. So what's he saying in our context? You're here in worship this morning. In the middle of worship here this morning, if God says, you know what? 
I think someone has something against He's saying, I want you to leave here right now. Go find them. If they're in this building, go find them right now. If you're in singing, stop in the middle of singing and go find them. If you're sitting here in a service, go do it right now. What he's saying is that reconciliation with other people, dealing with the murderous condition of our hearts, is more important than sitting in a service, listening to a sermon, singing a song, being in a Bible study, going to a WSB class, or serving in the church. He's saying right relationship is more important than spiritual or religious service. He is elevating this profoundly. Like we're saying, yeah, but I'm doing a good thing, God. Like I'm in church. Isn't that good? He goes, yeah, it's okay. But not as good as reconciled relationships. That's where Jesus has elevated this to. That's what he's saying it needs to be done. Don't miss the point Jesus is making. Anger and harsh words are not simply character flaws. They are dangerous sins that put us in danger of eternal death. That's what he is saying to us. He is being very adamant and very strong here. It's a profound thing that he's saying. Be reconciled. So how do we move from a culture of death to a culture of life? We move from a culture of death to a culture of life by being reconciled with God who gives us life. Right? The first relationship is always us and God. Culture wants to put a different God. He wants to elevate a small g God, us as God. Culture is God ahead of God, our creator. So the place to begin is to be reconciled with him. That's where it starts. And then we learn to live that out, which is in being reconciled with other people. So the question is, are you a murderer? Do you ever say anything to hurt someone? Do you ever take satisfaction in another person's misfortune? Do you say harsh things about others? Do you have an enemy, someone you want to make suffer? Is there someone that you've ever tried to undermine? Do you want to make someone pay for what they've done? Do you ever get so angry that you're out of control, that you cannot catch your words that are violating other people? There are many ways to break the sixth commandment, and we're all guilty of at least some of them. I know I am. We're all guilty of at least some of them. And Jesus is saying, go and make things right. Because the kingdom of God does not belong to murderers. Galatians 5 puts it this way. It tells us that anyone who is guilty of hatred, of discord, which means means creating division, of fits of rage, of envy, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Friends, I beg you, if there is someone to be reconciled with, go reconcile. Now you might say, that's uncomfortable. Yes, it is. Absolutely. I don't want to do it. Well, neither do I. Jesus didn't say, go reconcile unless you're uncomfortable. Like he never said, go reconcile unless it's hard. It's always hard because it's broken relationship. It's always uncomfortable because it's broken relationship. But Jesus says we're a covenant people, first with God and with each other. And in covenant relationships, do not murder. Do not have murder in your heart. Be reconciled. You know what the beauty of reconciliation is? Once you do the hard stuff, it just feels so good. To go, we're good. You know, I don't have to quit coming to the 1130 service uh, to avoid people that come in the earlier services. I can actually go to any service because we're reconciled. 
I don't have to worry about where I park because I might run into somebody that I've got an issue with. Doesn't matter where I park. BCIT anywhere is good. Because we're reconciled. I can go to the grocery store and I know this other person lives in my neighborhood and I'm not walking down the grocery store and looking down the aisle and going, oh no, that's them. I hope they didn't see me. I better go the other way. Right? And you're there with your spouse and you're going, they didn't see us, did they? I hope they didn't see us. That tells you there's something to be reconciled. Why does God tell us to do this through Jesus? He says, I want you to be free. I want you to be free. I sent my son to die. So every sin is taken care of, even the murderous ones. And that includes your relationship with other people. You see, we move from a culture of death to a culture of life by taking responsibility for broken relationships. And when our relationships are good, our relationships are healed, our relationships are reconciled, we live free. There's nothing inhibiting us. We live free at that place. And that is what God died for. That is what he sent his son for, so we can live free. That's what he invites us to. And he tells us broken relationships and reconciliation take precedence over worship. They take precedence over any act of service in the kingdom of God. Your acts of service do not negate your need to be reconciled. He says, be reconciled. Next major point, we move from a culture of death to a culture of life by caring for all people. By caring for all people. What does that look like? And why do I say that? One of the issues being contested today is euthanasia or assisted suicide or how it's being often referred to as death with dignity. Right? It has an increasingly impersonal name. And one of the reasons that that individualism brings us to the point of increasingly being interested in death with dignity or in assisted suicide is because as we live isolated lives and our, our despair increases, our fear increases, that often drives the request for assisted suicide. People live in fear. They're afraid of what's next. They're afraid of pain and suffering. They're afraid of what they see coming ahead. They're concerned perhaps about the burden that they may be on other people. But the compassionate response is to bring support and encouragement and to provide high-quality care. It is not to suggest that a life be ended. You see, because God calls us to community. God calls us to community. He calls us to care for the vulnerable. He calls us to love our neighbor. It's the second command. First, love God. Second, love people. He says that is how we show value it is by loving others. It's one, say, it's one thing to say we value all of life. It's another thing to live in such a way that demonstrates that value. Throughout the Bible, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, God continually called people to value other people. And the rules that he gave to his people, it always had to do with protecting the poor and the marginalized and those who were struggling among them. And that's why rules were put in place to ensure that there would be no generational poverty amongst the people of Israel. Because he always valued people. And Jesus continued to bring value to people. He continued to uplift the value of people. The the people that he healed were often on the margins. He continued to speak truth and value. Because people are created in the image of God. The people he chose for his disciples were not those who were at the pinnacle of society. They were people on the margins. And Jesus, teaching this principle again, says in Matthew 25... 
in showing how God's love matters. He said, then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. How? For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. That's how saying I love God shows up. That is the gospel lived out in the reality of people's lives. How does that show up in dealing with those who are struggling among us? We care for those who are struggling, who are living with a disability or serious illness. We must care for those who are struggling to receive proper medical care. We must care for those in despair, believing that their lives are not worth living. We must care for those who are afraid of losing capacity or afraid that they may suffer. We must care for those needing pain control or support without quality palliative care. So often people are afraid of the future and they're living in isolation. And friends, Vancouver and greater Vancouver is a very isolated place. There's a great deal of loneliness and isolation in this city as there is in every large city. And people are suffering alone. And when people are suffering alone and we have an individualistic culture of death, then death with dignity starts to look like a much better option because there is no community surrounding them. All human life is precious. Each person's life has inherent worth and dignity because it is valued by God, made in the image of God, loved by God. Assisted suicide devalues human life. To say death with dignity is a mislabeling of the, of the act. It also disregards the other people impacted by that act in terms of family and friend who, who are connected to them. We need to protect those who are on the margins, those who are marginalized, those with disabilities. When society says, you're better off dead, we say, no, that's not true because you are valued by God. And so we affirm the dignity and life of every individual. And suffering does demand a response, but it demands a response of care and compassion of support and high-quality palliative care, the people of God living out what it means to be the people of God. That's why we have life groups at Willingdon in a very simple way. And that's why we changed the name from small group to life group. Why? Because it's not just about studying the Bible. It's not just about learning spiritual principles. It's literally about walking in life together, hence the name. And all of us at some point will need people to walk with us. And many people who come to this city do not have family here because they're from wherever in the world. That's one of the beauties of this city. That's one of the struggles of this city. And so we need to be family to each other. And Jesus said the definition of family. He says, my family is those who do the will of my father. He didn't say my family are those who I'm biologically connected to. He said, my family are those who do the will of my father. And so we walk together. When I find out that someone is struggling with some issue, the first thing I want to know is, are they in a life group? And I want to call a life group leader and find out how are they being supported. Because that is a place where caring needs to start. That's why we keep inviting people. Move towards life groups. Walk in community. Walk together. Because at some point we will all be celebrating and at some point we will all be struggling. That is the reality of life. And we want that to be the place of authenticity. That's also why there's things like uh, alongside the ministry for those with chronic uh, illness or... Um, uh, grief share for those who have lost loved ones. 
and other ministries that come alongside people. That's why the prayer center is so incredibly important. That's why the cafe is so important. So you have a chance to build relationship, grab a meal, and go sit down with someone you've never met before. And nine out of ten times, you're going to meet somebody very interesting. I've met so many amazing people from around the world just doing that and finding out amazing stories. We are called to life and to be a culture of life because God values every human being. The last point, and perhaps the most uncomfortable one, is we move from a culture of death to a culture of life when we protect lives of the unborn. When we protect the lives of the unborn. We live in a country that has no law protecting the unborn, one of two countries in the world that doesn't have a law to protect the unborn. It's interesting. It's as if God knew this day was coming. And in Exodus chapter 21, there's actually instruction on the unborn and protecting the unborn. It's as if in Exodus 21, God said to Moses, if men who are fighting hit a pregnant woman and she gives birth prematurely, but there is no serious injury, the offender must be fined whatever the woman's husband demands and the court allows. But if there is serious injury, you are to take life for life. So if the woman is accidentally struck, and if she dies or the baby dies, then the, the crime, the punishment is the same as for taking any adult or any other life. So even that, back in the day of Moses, God is saying the unborn life is incredibly important. It is the same as any other life is what he is saying to us. And so one of the questions that comes up then is, well, when does life begin? And there's all kinds of people who say, well, it begins at this many weeks. Or others people would say, well, it's only when the child is separate from the mother and born, you know, out of the womb. Friends, it's simple. Life begins at conception. Why does life begin at conception? Because that is the place where the DNA that God puts in that that life that will become a wonderful human being, that's where that starts. That DNA doesn't happen at 16 weeks. It doesn't suddenly turn at some other point along the the gestational trail. It, It begins at conception. And I believe anything else to try and determine when does life begin is simply mental gymnastics for our own sake. So there you have my opinion on that one. Hope it's clear. We need to protect life. In uh, 1916, Reverend Charles Aikid said this famous statement, which has been applied to many situations. He said, for evil men to accomplish their purpose, it is only necessary that good men should do nothing. For evil men to accomplish their purpose, it is only necessary that good men should do nothing. In other words, stay silent. And on this issue, the body of Christ has been far too silent in Canada. Why do I say that? Every year, there are 90,000 to 100,000 abortions in Canada. In the United States, there's about a million every year. Last year, globally, there were 42 million abortions. So the greatest threat to human life in the world today is not disease. It is not war. It is, it is not any of those kinds of things. It is abortion. So it means the human being is at greatest risk, actually, in the womb, in our world today. It is the policy of the UN to promote abortions around the world. It is a way to control populations around the world, particularly with the poor. That is the agenda that is being put forward. 
under the guise of health care. It is the number one cause of death today. Friends, we need to stand up for the unborn. And protecting the unborn does not minimize a woman's right to choose. Protecting the unborn is simply the natural expression of recognizing that life is a gift from God and that we are responsible to care for that life. If we don't like the consequences of our choices, we need to either make different choices that lead to different results. If we made a mistake that led to a pregnancy, the answer is not to end the life. The answer is to come around that individual and bring as much love and care and support as we can to be family if they need family, to bring care. And if it comes to the place where the baby is given up for adoption, I think it's the church across the country that should step up and be adopting more and more kids. I think that is, represents actually what the heart of God is, especially for, the, for children. Because we know Jesus' heart for children. It is not part of who God created us to be for a mother not to protect a child or a father not to protect a child. That is not who God made us to be. Friends, we need to step up as believers in Christ who believe in a culture of life. The culture of death promoted by many in our country is a natural extension of the ideology of individualism. When I am the center of everything in my life, when everything revolves around me, when I am my own moral compass, I've actually lost my moral compass. It is God, first of all, our relationship with him, our relationship with God's people through, through the leading of the Spirit that we find our moral compass. That is the reality. And that is why we reconcile things. That is why we make things right. Heard this amazing story the other day, visiting with a uh, pastor friend of mine in another city. And a, and a man had come to faith in Christ. And as my friend was walking with him and discipling him, this young man said, you know what? I have pushed many women, multiple women, to end a pregnancy that I was the cause of. And so what he was doing now, actually, is he was going back and finding these women and asking their forgiveness for the pressure that he put on them. Because this story is never just a story about women. If you're pregnant, there's a man involved. So it's a story of men and women. So we cannot place this just on women. It's both men and women who need to uphold the sanctity of life. The other thing that you find in community is healing. We find healing in community, friends. So whatever your story, whatever murderous thing that maybe has been in your heart, whether you have, you have hurt people by the things you've said, there's reconciliation you need to do. Maybe you've been a divisive person. Maybe you've been someone who has undermined someone else and you need to pursue reconciliation. God says there's always healing in community. God says, come to me and I will give you rest. I will forgive your sin. That's what Jesus did. If you have been part of an abortion, whether you've had one or you've pushed another person to have one, God says there is healing in community. There is forgiveness in community. That is the beauty of who he is. Regardless of our story, regardless of the pain we have caused others, regardless of the choices we've made that has caused pain for ourselves, God says there is healing in community. First of all, in forgiveness with him, and then we walk in community with each other. Friends, if this is part of your story, we will walk with you as a church. We will walk with you, we will pray with you, we will give you community. We have counseling resources. That is part of who we are as God's people because that's what we're called to be just as every church is. One practical piece on the abortion issue. If you want uh, to get some insight into abortion, 
and to hear a firsthand story. Uh, there's a movie out that's called Unplanned. Uh, you may have seen it. We've had posters around the church. This coming weekend, we've rented uh, the Cineplex Theater up at Metrotown on Saturday morning. And if you would like to see the movie, it's the story of uh, Abby Johnson. Abby Johnson was a, uh, the director of a Planned Parenthood facility in Texas. She herself had several abortions after, I think it's seven years of running the clinic, uh, after she had, she had seen an abortive act and something inside of her just snapped. And she is now a pro-life advocate, and this movie is her story. So if you want to understand how Planned Parenthood works and many abortion clinics and the thought process around it, I would encourage you to see the movie uh, this coming Saturday morning. There are tickets available in the Resource Center. I think they're almost gone. So if you want to go or take a friend, I would encourage you to uh, pick up tickets. Finally, we move from a culture of death to a culture of life when we live a God-honoring life. How do we do that? We honor God when we place no other person, no other thing before him in our lives. Or the simple other way to say it, when we give God supremacy in our lives. And we look at everything else that is actually trying to usurp God. Whether it's our need for control, whether it's individualism, whether it's something else from a different culture than Canada, and we say, no, God will be number one. That is the place a God-honoring life begins. We honor God when we grow in our relationship with him, when we read the Bible, when we write down the things he's teaching, when we get in a life group or a discipleship group, when we pursue reconciliation. When we serve somewhere, our faith grows. We honor God when we follow him in obedience, reflecting him and his values to the world, regardless of opposition. The reality, friends, is I've talked to numerous people this week and already saying, man, where I worked and I'm in the medical profession or, or I'm working in other places and boy, this is clashing. And I'm trying to figure out how to honor God, how to honor the sanctity of life when there's policies and principles and rules coming down in the place that I work. And friends, I can't tell you what to do other than I can say you need to pray and ask God, how do I live out my faith in this context? How do I promote the sanctity of life wherever I am? And for some people, they've had to step away from some of their employment because they can't in good conscience do what they've been asked to do because it violates the sanctity of life too much. And finally, we honor God when we love people the way he loves people. See, the inconvenience part is actually loving people, being family to each other, being community to each other. It infringes on things that are comfortable for us. It infringes on our schedules. It infringes on our time. This is what God calls us to, is to be his people and to walk together. Because when you uphold the sanctity of life, it's not just saying, well, we want an abortion law that honors life. It's actually saying, I will treat another human being the way God would treat them, and I will lift them up. They are no better than me. They are no worse than me because we are brothers and sisters in Christ. And so we will live that out in supporting each other and walking with each other. That is what he calls us to, to love people the way he loves people. Because that gives voice and expression to the reality of the good news of Jesus Christ. And that's why Jesus came, is to give us life and life in all its fullness. Let's stand for closing prayer. <clears throat> Father, on the surface, do not murder seems like a simple word that we can all abide by. And yet as we unpack your word and, and the bigger picture of what you teach us and what Jesus taught, it becomes much more difficult. But Lord, you tell us that as we walk with you and we first of all are reconciled with you, you fill us with your Holy Spirit and you call us to live in obedience to the
to the Father, which means we can live this out. And you tell us to be reconciled so that when things are not lived out the way you call us to, we repair those relationships. And Lord, you give us forgiveness when we ask you to forgive. And the first place is just walking into relationship with you and we simply say, Jesus, come be my leader and my forgiver and my friend. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Help me to follow you all of my days. And then we say, God, give me the strength to forgive those that I have hurt. Give me the strength to step out and be reconciled, to take that initiative. And Father, today for the people who know there's someone to be reconciled with, I pray for the courage and the boldness to make the phone call, to set up the meeting, to make an appointment, to sit down face-to-face or to sit down on Skype, whatever it takes, Lord. Because you tell us to drop everything and to be reconciled. Father, for those in our lives who need care, who need loving, that we would walk beside them, whether it's an illness, whether it's in pregnancy, whether it's in struggling through these things, whether it's dealing with the aftermath of making difficult decisions. Father, you are a God of hope and a God of healing. And I just pray that we would not buy into the lie that we should be isolated and not tell anyone our story because that's a lie from the pit of hell. Because evil only wants to keep us isolated and in pain. And you're a God who brings life because you bring forgiveness. So I thank you that the word do not kill is a word of life. Not just to prohibit something, but to live in such a way that the glory of the life you have called us to in the presence of the Spirit is what you want to live out in us and through us. So Father, may we be your people as we go into this week, expressing your love, walking with each other, correcting our mistakes, walking in forgiveness, both from you, Father, and extending to each other, that we would be the people of God who give evidence to the reality of the risen Son. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.